Before we begin this edition of Tim Talks Politics Podcast, I just want to let you know, if you are interested in supporting the podcast in any active way, there are two ways you can do that that I'd greatly appreciate. First off, if you would be up for giving us a review on any uh, podcast platforms that you're listening to this podcast on, that really helps the show in terms of gaining us more visibility and, and just increasing our reach and spread. And secondly, if you're more interested in supporting the podcast and the work I do at TimTalksPolitics.com financially, you can do that a variety of ways as well. I really work hard to make sure that this is a podcast and newsletter that is devoid of all kinds of sponsored content and ads, mostly because they get really distracting and I want to keep things focused on the conversation. But that does mean that we have to offset costs other ways. So if you're interested in financially supporting Tim Talks Politics, either the podcast, the website, the newsletter, there's a variety of ways in which you can do that. You can go to our podcast website at anchor.fm backslash Tim Talks Politics and click on support. Or you can subscribe to the premium weekly newsletter, The Weekly Brief, by going to timtalkspolitics.com backslash weekly brief and subscribing there. Either way, it'd be great to per- partner with you in advancing the work of Tim Talks Politics and in bring- continuing to bring content and insight and information into our information cycle. So thanks for your support. Now let's get started. Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello, welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Today, we're diving into our summer series of the podcast. And if you might remember last summer when we launched this podcast, we kind of did a little bit of a read through and commentary on the Declaration of Independence. And for this summer, we're going to do a similar read through of one of the great documents in American politics. And we'll be looking at the American Constitution. Now, you might remember that in the last podcast episode, we interviewed Dr. Tom Passan at Harvard to discuss his book on the Republican Party and the blind spots they face in the coming election cycle. If you're looking for the second half of that discussion uh, with uh, another observer of the Democratic Party and their blind spots, still working on locating the uh, inside expert to break that down, but it is coming. And I hope to have that for you before Election Day. But for now, we're going to review the Constitution. This is going to be similar to what we did with the Declaration of Independence last summer. I'll read a little, talk a little, read a little more, and we'll just work through the Constitution that way. Now, the objective here is not to give you an exhaustive knowledge or deep detail of the uh, of the document, its history, the Supreme Court case law surrounding it, all that good stuff. Rather, the object- objective is to do something that many of you probably haven't done since eighth grade or maybe your senior year of high school, and that is read through the entire U.S. Constitution. There's actually been numerous studies done on kind of like the state of civics education in the United States, and that's one of the frequent findings is that most American adults haven't looked at the Declaration of Independence or the American Constitution since secondary school at some point. So my hope is 
is that in reading through this extraordinary document, we can do a few things. First, I hope we can just reach a better understanding of the major forms and functions of the federal government. Second, I really want to help us better evaluate what is working and what isn't working in our current political moment. A lot of misinformation or mischaracterization of the federal government is what drives a lot of the angst and hyperbole surrounding political reporting in the news cycle these days. Third, I want to help you and maybe even myself in the course of this discover that despite all the many flaws, there's still a solid theory of government and human behavior behind this document. And then finally, as always, my hope is that even in a polarized time like the time we now live in, I hope that we'll find embedded in the words and ideas of the American Constitution that there is more that unites us than divides us. And I hope that we can kind of reach that conclusion as we kind of work through this document, let it percolate down a little bit and and really uh, sink down into our understanding of what it uh, what the American government is not just built to be, but designed to even do. So that's kind of how we're going to approach this, and hopefully this finds um, find you find this useful. Now, a little background. Uh, I am not a constitutional law expert. I know I study political science. I'm working on getting a doctorate in that field. But there's a lot of subfields in political science, constitutional law being one of them, and that is not one of my subfields. Political philosophy is one of my subfields, though, and so that's kind of how I'm approaching this, is what are the ideas of government that are kind of implicit in the document? That's the first way I approach it. The second way I'm approaching this is actually just as, like yourself, an average citizen, someone who lives in the United States, who lives under the Constitution as the law of the land, and so just wanting to understand how that frames the government I interact with, or as we'll find in the preamble, the government that is my own, because that's who implements this constitution. That's where sovereignty rests in the United States is with the people. So I want to understand it just as an average citizen. And then third, I suppose, one of the ways I approach the constitution is just going to be a plain upfront reading. There's obviously 200 years of case law and Supreme Court rulings, you know, amendments that have been added that shift and bend the Constitution different directions. Um, so there's, and there's of course the whole philosophical argument over living document or original, originalist interpretations of document. We're going to just shelve those for now. Those are bigger discussions and maybe we'll get there one day. But for now, let's just read the document and let's just kind of peruse it and try to understand what it's saying in plain English, which is a big enough challenge considering we're talking about English from the 18th century. So let's dive in. And we start with the preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. The preamble is kind of a, I feel like, a Declaration of Independence 2.0. It has the same ringing endorsement of justice, equality, freedom, and liberty, all that good stuff. It's similarly eloquent. But let's also bear in mind that this actually is kind of the executive summary of the document. And as eloquently as it's worded, it's really laying out the core objectives of American government. Now, we've had 200 years of history and politics to kind of uh, give us different views on, you know, which of these objectives is uppermost in the minds of different political parties and leaders. But let's just, again, go for a basic reading here. The primary objectives of the American government, of the federal government, as constituted here, is that one, trying to establish a more perfect union. In other words, 
the framers of the Constitution understood that their government and their country was not a perfect setup uh, at the outset. I think this is really important because they understood they were flawed people. They understood they had a flawed political system. At that time, it was a political system under the Articles of Confederation. And their goal for this Constitution is to build a better country, a more perfect, not just union, not perfect in every sense of the term, but perfect in its political organization, in its political structure. Secondly, the objective is to establish justice. It's justice is like the question of political philosophy. That is the objective of the political community. Uh, that goes back to Aristotle in the beginning of political science. So they, they are, the writers of the Constitution are embedding the Constitution in a kind of lived out political philosophy. They understand that this is more than about just who holds power and who exercises it. It's There's a purpose behind it and there's an objective here and that is mainly justice. But there are some other objectives here too. Ensuring domestic tranquility, just making sure we can all get along with one another and that there is peace in the land. Uh, providing for the common defense, making sure that uh, that the borders are protected, promoting the general welfare. This is a tricky phrase, uh, as we'll find out, is just that general welfare can be big. It can be anything. And then what does that look like for the constitutional government to promote the general welfare? Is it to mean to put the funds of the uh, of the uh, gathered taxes to work for general welfare? Is it to create a is it to create the legal framework to promote the general welfare? Again, these types of uh, how people answer these questions is going to be part of how um, we frame different political ideologies. And then overall to secure the blessings of liberty. And then this is really important. I like how this constitutional preamble takes the long view. The objective of the Constitution is not just to secure the blessings of liberty to the individuals who framed the Constitution. They created this constitution with posterity in mind, not just the next generation, not just their children, not just their grandchildren, or even their great-grandchildren. They were trying to craft in, these, in this document uh, a structure of government that will last, they'll stand the test of time. And I think there's some really interesting uh, pieces we can take from that that I'll get to later on. But uh, just let's bear in mind here that they're not just trying to frame a a structure of government that will benefit just them and their families, or even just them and their immediate descendants. So that's kind of the objective here. We're trying to look for a form of government that's going to essentially build the best human society possible, or at least at least the most um, the the one that is most designed to establish justice and ensure that there's peace and and uh, safety for all, and uh, and that all can enjoy the blessings of liberty. So that's that's kind of the objective here. That being said. We dive into Article 1, and Article 1, just the overview, is the outline for Congress. It's this is who the legislative branch of government is going to be. This is how they're going to operate. And it's surprising that in a country that is becoming more and more focused on presidential elections and Supreme Court nominees, it's really the Congress that occupies the most ink in the uh, Constitution. It, it takes up the most debate of the constitutional framers, and that's because, as we'll find in Section 1, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which will, which will consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. In other words, the lawmaking power of the United States was going to be vested in Congress. And in the eyes of many, like James Masson, who helped draft this, John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, his fellow authors in the Federalist Papers, they saw this as the primary and strongest branch of government. 
and this gives us our bicameral Congress. Senate on one side, House of Representatives on the other. Now, why two houses? Why a bicameral legislature? Well, that's because the framers of the Constitution wanted to make sure that we had one seated uh, House of Congress that wanted the House of Representatives that was very representative of the people. Uh, and we'll get into how that was defined in a little bit. And then they want some uh, a chamber that spoke with more experience that was maybe one or two steps removed from the general public just to uh, give a, gra a greater sense of uh, long-term thinking that wasn't so focused on electioneering uh, and party politics. We'll get into how well that's held up over time as well. Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years, been seven years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within the union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years in such manner as they shall by law direct. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative. And until such enumeration shall be made, the state of New Hampshire shall be entitled to choose three, Massachusetts eight, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations one, Connecticut 5, New York 6, New Jersey 4, Pennsylvania 8, Delaware 1, Maryland 6, Virginia 10, North Carolina 5, South Carolina 5, and Georgia 3. When vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. The House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. That's a long one. But basically, this is looking at the organization of the House of Representatives. So let's take a look at a couple of things here. First, election cycles of every two years. So that's the first thing is that the House of Representatives is elected, uh, members of the House of Representatives are elected every two years. Uh, and the qualifications uh, for those who vote for them, in other words, voter qualifications, uh, shall be the same as for those who vote for whatever is the larger legislative branch in the several states. And this is kind of wonky writing because that doesn't really apply much anymore because pretty much if you're a citizen and an adult over the eight years of 18 years of age, you can vote. Uh, but at the time, there were actual qualifications for who was allowed to vote. You were male. Uh, you owned property. This was actually an important qualifier. You had to be a taxpayer, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so they were looking at, at that when they're talking about the number of electors in terms of who can who can vote and stuff like that. Uh, they also lay out the basic guidelines for when you're qualified to run for the house. So you have to uh, you have to be 25 years, at least 25 years old. You have to be a citizen of the United States for seven years. And uh, when you're elected, you have to be an inhabitant of the state in which uh, you shall be chosen. And additional election laws, usually you have to be a resident of the district in which you're uh, running uh, for Congress as well. And that talks about, well, how do we determine the number of representatives? And this is where in this next paragraph where they talk about direct taxes, etc. This has been modified by future amendments to the Constitution. Embedded in this is the 
Uh, now, highly controversial uh, three-fifths uh, compromise, which was basically how um, slaves were counted in the population of the different states. They were basically counted as three-fifths of a person. And there's an interesting history in that by itself. But essentially, uh, southern states, which had smaller populations of landowners, and essentially they were going to be getting fewer representatives. They didn't want to cede a bunch of political power to the northern states, which were more populous and had more, you know, freeborn uh, landowning taxpayers. So they had larger populations, meaning they were going to get more representatives. So they were actually arguing that uh, all their slaves should be counted as uh, part of the population because that's, you know, the total number of people. Well, many of the northern uh, northerners recognized, and many of them anti-slavery, by the way, uh, recognized that this was just a power play and that the, most of these uh, southern uh, representatives weren't go- about to give voting rights to their slaves or anything like that. And so they just, they just said no. And that actually put the Constitutional Convention at an impasse. They weren't quite sure how to, how to get this. And so there was kind of a meeting halfway here and, um, and you know, slaves were then counted as, you know, as it says here, three steps as a person. Obviously, with the end of slavery and the establishment of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments at the end of the Civil War, it kind of re- restructured all this because that ended slavery. It gave uh, black men the right to vote and all that good stuff. And so that uh, made sure uh, that kind of revamped this entire uh, terminology here. Okay, after that, uh, we should also note here is that uh, they also make a provision for a census because once you determine how many representatives each states have, they also recognize that there's going to be changes in population over time. And so that's going to lead to the need to kind of like recalculate how many representatives. Now, I forget the actual law or amendment or what have you, but they essentially set it. Uh, they don't really set a population cap on the number of uh, people here. Uh, essentially, uh, actually, they set a cap at uh, 30,000, so one representative for every 30,000 people. And you might be thinking, well, there's 300 million people in America, so that would be a lot of representatives now. Uh, and it would be, but again, the Constitution was modified to uh, to essentially uh, cap the number of representatives in the House of Representatives at 435. And so that has led to the um, increasing number amount of population that each rep- each representative represents in their respective districts. But in order to establish that, every 10 years we have a census. We're having run right now in 2020. And out of that, you will uh, they will then redraw congressional district lines to ensure that the right numbers of populations, I think it's like few hundred thousand or something now are represented, you know, more or less equally spread out among the different uh, districts. So this is where you have, like, say, Los Angeles County in California might have multiple districts, congressional districts in just one county because it's really densely populated. But you might just have, you know, districts that spread over thousands of square miles in western states like Montana or the Dakotas. Uh, So anyway, but this whole section kind of looks at, you know, who, how are we counting the population? And how is that counting of the population going to affect the assignment of number of representatives to each uh, each state? And there's some elements regarding taxation here, but that's irrelevant uh, now due to different taxation laws and the development of income taxes and stuff like that. More later. Uh, and that provides for what happens when someone says either dies in office, gets impeached or removed or something like that before they get voted out. And they basically laid out here saying, hey, those vacancies get filled by special election. We see that a lot. Okay, section three. The Senate of the United States, so now we're moving from the House to the Senate. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, 
chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Immediately after they shall be assembled, in consequence of the first election, they shall be divided as equally as may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one third may be chosen every second year. And if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive, in that case the governor, thereof may make Make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies. No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of the state for which he shall be chosen. The vice president of the United States shall be president of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The Senate shall choose their other officers and also a president pro tempore in the absence of the vice president or when he shall exercise the office of president of the United States. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments when sitting for that purpose they shall be an oath of uh, they shall be on oath of affirmation or affirmation excuse me when the president of the united states is tried the chief justice shall preside and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So section three covers a lot of ground because this not only sets up the Senate, but it actually lays out some unique elements of the Senate. So let's uh, take them one at a time. First off, and this is pretty common in Civics 101 stuff, each state gets two senators. Uh, now, this is really interesting is that at the time, remember I said that the Senate was originally conceived as supposedly the uh, warrant two steps removed from uh, the general public. And so they were appointed by the state legislatures. And the idea here was that the House of Representatives would represent the general population of a state uh, or the different districts of a state, while the Senate uh, kind of the senators would kind of represent the interests of the state government themselves. And so here we're even we're also recognizing that there are different stakeholders in not only the national government, but within the state government as well. And so there was a desire to try to make sure that there was a kind of like national level conversation, a national level lawmaking consciousness, and not just a um, kind of regionalist or localist uh, lawmaking consciousness uh, in Congress. In keeping with that, uh, senators were originally appointed by state legislatures. Now, the uh, 17th Amendment, I believe, uh, kind of abolished that and amended the Constitution so that senators are now directly elected by the people just as members of the House of Representatives. But they still get elected every six years. And but uh, as they get elected every six years, uh, they kind of get cycled in. So the unlike the House of Representatives, where every two years, the whole House of Representatives is up for election. At the same time, because of the way they set it up here in Section 3, that different uh, seats of the uh, of the Senate are up every six years, but they kind of staggered it. That means that a third of the Senate turns over every two years as well. But it's kind of designed to be more phased to ensure a greater continuity in, in government and leadership. Uh, the age requirements, the citizenship requirements, the residency requirements are all a little longer and larger than for the House of Representatives. Again, it's kind of playing into this idea of more experience. And uh, then you have the review of who leads the Senate. In this case, it's the uh, vice president of the United States. And then there's a couple of discussions such as appointing a president pro tempore to sit in if the vice president can't be there. 
and or when the vice president becomes the uh, president of the United States, etc. But then the other interesting thing is this unique power the Senate has, and that is the power to try all impeachments. Now, we usually think about impeachment in terms of, of the president, but members of Congress can be impeached too, uh, and uh, Supreme Court justices can be impeached. And so we have to uh, think about the Senate in those terms. And impeachments become basically a question of removal from office. And they make a key point here is that if someone gets impeached, and it has to be by two thirds so that you don't get kind of petty politics driving impeachment, they basically say that impeachment just means the person gets removed from office. Now, if they actually engaged in actual criminal conduct, there can be criminal trials after that. But impeachment doesn't really mean that someone is involved in criminal activity, what it just means is that they've failed to uphold their oath of office or otherwise um, behave as expected or required of the office. And so impeachment can cover a lot of things, not just criminal wrongdoing. Uh, so yeah, that's impeachment. And the Senate is, are the ones who uh, kind of serve as the jury uh, in the midst of that. Uh, of course, the trial is kind of overseen by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Okay, let's move to section four. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at time, at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall be on the first Monday in December, unless they shall, by law, appoint a different day. Now, this is kind of interesting. It's a little arcane uh, today that... Congress has to meet at least once a year. Now, that's kind of funny because Congress is kind of like meeting 24-7. I mean, it's a it's big news when they go on recess in August and at the holiday break and, and at the end of the year. Uh, so we kind of have a full-time Congress these days. But at the time when you had to travel, in some cases, hundreds of miles to get to the seat of government, uh, when, you, when a lot of these guys were uh, practicing... Uh, professionals, practicing farmers, practicing lawyers, etc. Uh, they had to be elsewhere. They were not expected to be full-time employees of of the federal government uh, in their capacity as members of Congress. And so it's important to recognize that uh, that Congress functions very differently than it did. Now, you note that the wording of Section 4 allows for more meetings, it says, at least once a year. So it's not to say that just because Congress functions differently that they're functioning in a way that they weren't designed to function. Actually, Section 4 leaves it open for Congress to meet 365 days of a year if they want. They just have to meet at least once. Section 5. Each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. But a smaller number of, may adjourn from day to day and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members in such manner and under such penalties as each house may provide. Each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrent, uh, concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. Each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings and from time to time publish the same, accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy and the yeas and nays of the members of either house on any any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. Neither House during the session of Congress shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two Houses shall be sitting. So Section 5 kind of is looking at the kind of the House rules, you might say. And by House, we don't mean the House of Representatives. We also mean the Senate as well. But just, uh, it kind of allows, kind of sets the broad framework for how the different chambers of Congress are going to function. Uh, it kind of allows for 
uh, each group setting their rules of debate. This, you know, who calls uh, different, who brings uh, laws or proposed laws to the floor for discussion. Uh, it also provides a a kind of a outline for the selection or establishment of committees, which are a big part of the congressional day-to-day -day business. Uh, and so each chamber, the House and the Senate, both kind of have their own way of doing things, their own unique proceedings or rules of order uh, that each newly membered, uh, newly elected member needs to uh, needs to be oriented to. And so this is what section section five is doing. All right, let's look at section six. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. They shall in all cases, except treason, treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. No senator or representative shall during the time for which he was elected be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which, will, which shall have been been created or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time and no person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office in other words you hold one office when you're a member of Congress not multiple offices you can't be a rep and a senator at the same time uh, you can't you know be a senator and an ambassador a senator you know the idea here is that you're trying to diffuse power you don't want power being concentrated in uh, one person or one office and so that's the core objective here also section six provides for the uh, compensation of members of congress now i did say uh, at the time many of them were still working professionals and or you know had their other sources of income and the idea was is that this was not going to be a full-time job this was not going to be your career the idea of a career pop uh, politician uh, was at the time of the writing of the constitution it's kind of looked down upon uh, really the idea was the ideal was that you would be a civil servant you would you would kind of serve your time in office in the service of the people you represent, and then you would return to your uh, kind of like your life calling, your career. Uh, so politics wasn't quite the career calling that uh, it is today in many respects. All right, section seven. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it become a law, be presented to the President of the United States. If he approve, he shall sign it, but if not, he shall return it with his objections to that House in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it. If, after such reconsideration, two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent, together with the objections to the other House, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered and approved by two-thirds of that House, it shall become a law. But in all such cases, the votes of both Houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal of each house respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days, Sundays accepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be a law in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevents its return, in which case it shall not be a law. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the president of the United States and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or being disproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and House of Representatives according to the rules and limitations prescribed in the case of a bill. 
Okay, lots of rules, lots of ins and outs here, but basically this is the basic process by which a bill becomes a law. This is where we are uh, considering the passage of a bill, how a bill becomes a law, etc. Now, this is there's an interesting clause at the very beginning. It says all bills for raising revenue. In other words, taxes. Tax bills originate in the House of Representatives. This is interesting because these are this is supposed to be the non-elite chamber of Congress. They come right from the people. So the idea is if there's any uh, hike in taxes, it's going to be coming from the people who are closest to the the people, the, you know, the people on the ground the most. And this is kind of, this is, I find interesting because you have to bear in mind the reason why, or one of the main reasons why America fought the Revolutionary War in the first place. It was because of what it saw as a burdensome tax requirement from the, uh, from the British Empire at the time. And so the idea of constraining the national government's power to tax is really at the forefront of Section 7 here. It's also interesting to note that in the same light, uh, Section 7 also picks up on another kind of key beef the Americans had with the with the British monarch and parliament as a whole in the Revolutionary War, and that was being ignored. Uh, several, uh, several missions from America, some of them led by Benjamin Franklin, went to parliament or went to get audiences with the king prior to the revolution to try to work out uh, the problems and the uh, and work out the issues surrounding the issue of taxation and other uh, parliamentary acts that affected the colonies. And they were often rebuffed, ignored, or just kind of um, kind of pushed to the side. And so you kind of see the desire to avoid that here. And you see it with the idea that if a president doesn't act on a bill that's on his desk, it becomes law in 10 days. So a president uh, could actually not put his or her signature on a bill but they can just let it sit on their desk for 10 days and it would become a law anyway. So there's two ways in which Congress can bypass uh, the president. And this is to ensure that the president doesn't kind of hold ultimate authority over law. And one of those ways is to just induce the president or the president themselves under their own volition, decide to let a bill sit on their desk for 10 days. And so long as those 10 days don't run into an adjournment period, it'll become law. Or if two thirds of the House and two thirds of the Senate agree that it should be a law and they bypass the veto. Otherwise, bills that get vetoed have to be kind of relitigated in Congress. That means they maybe have to be redrafted, uh, hence the objections sent back by the president's office, or they just kind of go away and don't get reconsidered again until another president is sitting in office. But all that to say, the basic process by which a bill becomes a law is outlined here uh, in Section 7. All right, Section 8. Now, Section 8 is very interesting because this is where we get into some of the debates over the limitations of congressional power or federal power in many respects. Section 8. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States, to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, to establish post offices and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive rights of to their respective writings and discoveries, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, 
to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be have a longer term than two years, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia, to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions, to provide for organizing army and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the United States respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the disciplines prescribed by Congress, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, Noxine 10 miles square, as may be by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, if you have a very strict originalist reading interpretation of section A of the amendment and if you probably lean somewhat libertarian you're going to look at this as an exhaustive list of what congress can and cannot do however for those who see this as a non-exhaustive list they look to that bottom paragraph to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers arguably this gives Congress a much broader ability to establish the federal bureaucracy, to uh, ensure that the whole regulatory framework that probably small government conservatives and libertarians alike generally castigate or are suspicious of. You can read that, and many do, read that last paragraph as having a much broader interpretation, kind of like creating a more maybe not a, maybe not a infinitely open list of powers, but at least at least gives the Congress kind of like a little more flexibility to interpret the foregoing powers more broadly by giving them the ability to set up the federal bureaucracy and their ability to uh, create or enforce uh, the laws that are created and passed by Congress. However, you can read this as a more strict uh, list of what Congress is and is not able to do. And this kind of leads, uh, this kind of lays out the broad categories of law uh, and oversight that Congress has. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do want to touch on a couple. First off, to constitute tribunals inferior to Supreme Court. In other words, uh, they can uh, set up different uh, courts. So the federal court system is uh, overseen by Congress in this way, at least just the establishment of courts. The appointment of judges, of course, comes from the president. Uh, and then they also have the ability to uh, set the uh, a lot of rules or uniform rules or standards for things like commerce uh, and the tools of commerce like money uh, the pun and also that entails the security of the money supply so punishment of counterfeiting uh, but then I think it's interesting to note a couple things in relationship to armies and navies on the one hand they can raise and support armies but the funding for those armies is only to be two years and this is because uh, due to their experience with British occupation, the Americans were very suspicious of permanent standing armies. They saw these as being just tools of tyranny. And so there's kind of these two-year windows in which funding for uh, the military, specifically the army, 
is uh, is to be had. But the next clause is to provide and maintain a navy. So there's kind of this recognition that there has to be some kind of permanent or semi-permanent military establishment, and that is a navy. And the idea there being is like, well, the navy can't really occupy land, can't really occupy houses, can't really uh, can't be the occupying force that a land army could be. And so it's kind of interesting that there's this just extra layer of regulatory uh, requirements placed on the oversight of an army as opposed to the Navy. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what uh, current budget and spending bills, how they interpret or frame that, but I just find it an interesting uh, distinction between the two. Of course, no mention of where an Air Force fits in here. Then another interesting thing that stands out to me in Section 8 is this issue of the militia. Now, we'll get we'll talk about, about this when we get to talking about the Second Amendment, but Section 8 and the Second Amendment both kind of get engaged when we start talking about gun rights and the gun rights of private citizens as opposed to the citizen as a private individual or a member of some citizen militia. Citizen militias were a much more common uh, piece of the, of the kind of like political and defense and security landscape of America at the time of the writing of the Constitution. But since then, I believe, I think it was in like the turn of the 20th century, so something like 1903 or sometime, uh, that the militias were kind of placed in a more nationalized structure, and that was with the formation of the National Guard. So the understanding of Section 8 here should be understood as applying to the National Guard. Now, how that relates to the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, we'll talk about when we get there. But just for the sake of just a broad general understanding of Section 8, we should probably best understand it as applying to uh, National Guards in the different states. Okay, and then finally, the next to last uh, paragraph of Section 8 is this idea of, ex of exercising exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever. Uh, that's referring to the District of Columbia. That's referring to Washington, D.C. Uh, essentially, Congress uh, passes a lot of laws uh, that are relative to uh, the running and administration of the uh, of Washington, D.C. So in, in a weird way, uh, and I don't know all the details and ins and outs of it, but a plain reading suggests that in a weird way, uh, Congress kind of functions as a glorified or oversized, depending on how you look at it, city council. Uh, now, Washington, D.C. does have a mayor, does have, you know, city-level representation, but Congress still has a lot of oversight over that, uh, over that area. All right, Section 9, we're almost there. Section 9. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may impo be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when, in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. No bill of attainder or ex post factor law shall be passed. No cap capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. No preference shall be given by any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another. Nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be ob obliged to enter clear or pay duties in another. No money bet shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States and no person holding any office or profit of trust under them shall without the consent of the Congress accept of any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince or foreign state. Now that emolument clause down there had a played a big role in some of the 
uh, early scandals and uh, pieces related to the uh, presidency of Donald Trump. I'll shelve that for now. But this is kind of a catch-all category in some ways, uh, just related to uh, some of the kind of like more specific types of laws or legal elements uh, that some of the different states were bringing to the table. And this is where it kind of is looking at, okay, uh, what can Congress do or not do in relation to some of these unique scenarios? But one of the, a couple of key points in section nine, one uh, is the use of taxes and also the movement of commerce among the states. Essentially, it says here that Direct tax, no direct cap, no decapitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to census or enumeration. Well, we now have a federal income tax that kind of amended um, that amendment, uh, changed uh, this particular element of the sec of section nine. Uh, but then the other interesting thing is the no taxes or duties on the movement of goods between states. Uh, and the idea here is that this kind of enshrines free trade among the uh, among the several states of the United States of America, and it kind of was the first step towards building a more integrated uh, national economy. Because prior to this, uh, that's exactly what was happening. What you should read uh, Section 9 as is all the things that were happening that was making it really difficult for the national government under the Articles of Confederation to govern the United States between the end of the Revolutionary War and the adoption of this Constitution in the 1780s. So what you had happening was different states were putting um, duties or export-import taxes on goods uh, that were crossing state lines. Some states were even coining and minting their own money uh, and making it very difficult to um, to kind of form any kind of unified economy in that respect. And some were even going so far as to start reaching out to foreign countries and even exploring sending their own ambassadors. So there was this whole thing of kind of like, hey, if we're going to be a United States of America, we kind of have to have a general sense of being on the same page related to things like the economy and trade, and it just meant for a better movement of goods and services. Now, at the front end of Section 9, it does mention the migration or importation of persons states think proper to admit. Now, migration is one thing. Importation is another. That's a reference to the slave trade. And what's interesting here is that it almost seems like the slave trade was too thorny an issue to touch when you're trying to just, when you already have concerns or fears of a national government became too strong, and particularly in the southern states. And so it's interesting uh, that there's kind of a window of time in which uh, states, in this case, particularly southern states, are given to uh, figure out what they're going to do about the slave trade, because more or less, this suggests that by 1808, Congress can prohibit the importation of slaves, and so essentially ending the slave trade. Uh, and at the same time, in the years between 1787 and 1808, an import tax was placed on, on slaves coming into the American South. Now, there's a couple different ways we can look at. One, it looks like, and it is, a uh, kind of an allowance for the uh, slave trade right there in the Constitution. And that's, uh, that's pretty reprehensible. Another way of looking at that, though, is kind of writing the end of the slave trade into the political structure and authority of the national government. Now, unfortunately, the end of importation of slaves in 1808 did not lead to the end of slavery in the United States, which uh, is a tragedy and continues to be a black mark in the uh, in the history of the United States. But the Constitution doesn't completely ignore slavery either. 
it's a complex approach to it and it kind of raises a very interesting question in terms of what were the immediate priorities and concerns of the different members of the different states. It seems to be, if you just read straight through the Constitution, it seems to be that the bigger concern was making sure that everybody could be on the same page in terms of how the national government was going to function before moving on to address this uh, this abysmal, horrible practice of of chattel slavery uh, in the American South. I sometimes wonder, and this is just a side note, if the founders or the guys who wrote this constitution could have possibly known that it would take as long as it did to finally get rid of slavery in the United States, or that would come at such a cost as the American Civil War. That's always something that I think about when I read this is, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I can applaud these guys for kind of writing in the end of the slave trade and even setting in motion the thinking that would eventually lead to not just the end of the slave trade, but even the enfranchisement of uh, black Americans. But at the same time, one has to wonder and even be saddened by the the willingness to just kind of let it continue in the form that it did. So, yeah, definitely a uh, a bigger conversation that we can get in that you know that we get in here kind of outside the objectives of what we're covering here, but uh, worth a story and a conversation all its own for sure. All right, just in the interest of time, let's get to section ten. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts or grant any title of nobility. So in other words, it's kind of like a just to be clear, everything we said in section eight and nine, you don't get to do it as a state government. We do it, you don't, uh, is kind of the uh, point here. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. No state shall, without and without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. In other words, Section A and 9 are Congress's domain and not the states. Now, this is an introduction of one of the key elements of federalism that under the theory of government that undergirds the Constitution, and that is the separation of powers. Now, usually when we think about federalism and the separation of powers, we think about it mostly in terms of the three branches of government, legislative, judicial, executive, in the Constitution. But federalism also talks about the separate and equal powers of the state governments. Now, state governments today function slightly differently than, say, state governments of the 1780s. State governments of today uh, tend to, especially as the federal bureaucracy and the federal legal code has expanded, tend to occupy a somewhat secondary place in relationship to the federal government. Surely the Civil War kind of established a stronger sense of hierarchy between the national government and the state governments. But fundamentally, uh, within the framework of the Constitution, there seems to be at the beginning this sense of state governments do this thing, the national government does this thing. It's not necessarily a statement of value, one being greater than the other, but it's a recognition, a recognition of separate and by design complementary spheres of power 
and control. So that's Article 1 of the Constitution, an overview of the uh, powers of Congress and how it's set up. If I made any factual or ina inaccuracies or misspoke on anything, those are completely my errors and I recognize that. But part of why I do this is also for my own good and for my own learning. So if anybody has a correction to make, please pass it along and I'll add it to the next podcast episode when we get into Article 2. But for conversation starters or for continuing the conversation past this, I want to suggest this question. Poll after poll, study after study suggests that Congress is one of the least popular branches of the federal government, often having approval ratings down in the 30s and even as low as the 20s or teens. Uh, so if you were to rewrite the Constitution or restructure Congress, would you scrap it all and start over? And if so, what would that look like? Or do you still think this framework is fundamentally sound? And if it's fundamentally sound, then what are the elements that are kind of contributing to a sense of a non-functioning Congress? And the reason I ask this question is because in today's more polarized political space, there is a general concern uh, held by many that Congress is ineffective, that Congress is unable to check executive power, which is one of the main things it was designed to do, that Congress has ceded a lot of its influence and lawmaking ability uh, to both the executive and the judiciary branches. So uh, it kind of raises this question of, you know, is Congress irredeemable? Is it irreparably lost? Or do we have to just make a couple of adjustments to kind of pull back Congress, or at least not pull back Congress, but reawaken Congress? to its former duties or responsibilities. It's an interesting thought and one that is worth pondering. If you'd like some more resources to uh, continue delving into this, there's a few I have uh, for you. First off, if you like this kind of read a little, talk a little, read a little uh, approach, you can check out my series on the Declaration of Independence. I'll include the links to those episodes in the show notes. Uh, but there's a couple of books I've been reading over the course of the summer, which might be good for setting the context and for understanding some of the thinking that the Founding Fathers brought to the Constitution. One is just a short little uh, edited essay or edited version of a longer essay written by John Adams. It's called A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America. And it's kind of his apologetic of how this Constitution was set up and why. And I think it's interesting because John Adams himself was currently serving as an ambassador in Europe at the time of the Constitutional Convention. So he didn't necessarily participate uh, in the formation of the Constitution. So this is him being an apologist for a document that he didn't have a direct hand in writing. So it's an interesting perspective. If you want just kind of a sense of the sequence of events, the history that led up to the Constitutional Convention and what surrounded it, you can check out Gordon Wood's uh, The American Revolution, A History. This is hands down one of the best books I've read on the American Revolution because it's short. It's I think it's only about 160 pages or so. So it's really uh, pithy, succinct, gives you kind of like the down and dirty of a very complex uh, conflict and its outcomes. Our National Archives, uh, your, your tax dollars at work, uh, have a, a transcript of the Constitution, which is uh, quite nice. And so if you want to just read along as I work my way through this, you can take a look at that. And then uh, different um, groups have different uh, annotations of the, uh, of the Constitution. So I'll link to a couple of them, a couple of them as well, one of which is the U.S. Congress itself has on their website an annotated, uh, annotated constitution. So I'll add to those. Uh, I'll add those to the show notes as well. So in wrapping, I want to read you this extended quote from the Gordon Wood book I just noted earlier, "The American Revolution of History." Here's what Wood says 
about one of the fundamental or, or rather key elements of the Constitution that kind of alters political thinking, certainly in the American context. Wood says, By locating sovereignty in the people, rather than in any particular governmental institution, the Federalists could now conceive of what previously had been a contradiction in politics, two legislatures operating simultaneously over the same community, the very issue over which the British Empire had broken. Thus, they could answer the principal anti-Federalist objection to the Constitution, that the logic of sovereignty would dictate that the National Congress would become the one final supreme indivisible lawmaking authority. Only by making the people themselves and not their representatives in the state legislatures or in the Congress the final supreme lawmaking authority could the Federalists explain the emerging idea of federalism, that unusual division of legislative responsibilities between the national and state governments in which neither is final and supreme. This idea became the model for similar divisions of legislative power elsewhere in the world. That's it for Article 1. I'll see you next time to discuss Article 2 and the executive branch. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malosh. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.